welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Hey, welcome adventurers to episode 44 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Scott, we've got our first episode of the new year. All sorts of new things coming out in 2022 that we're looking forward to, plus mm-hmm. also looking at some of the games that aren't really looked at that much. Yeah. yeah. Hey, adventurers, thank you for your support last year. We're just barely off the ground floor here. Maybe you're new to the show, in which case, welcome. If you've been with us for a while, though, Thanks for having us with you in your car or at work or whatever you're doing right now. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that we're excited to have people listen to us and grow this community with our meetups, which we'll talk about here in a couple moments. It's great to meet these people that we feel like we're friends with already, even before we get a chance to actually meet them. So it's it's a wonderful community to be a part of and glad to share it with you guys. Yeah, we got that next meetup. That's at Ruckus Cafe. If you're listening to this episode, then today's January 13th. What is it? Two days, the 15th. We're going to be at Ruckus Cafe oh. in Shaler in Pittsburgh. Come meet Mike Clark, Eric Mosso, Jordan Schoenberger of Jordan Plays Blue. He's a Dice Tower contributor. He's going to be there as well, win some games, <laughs> get hopped up on caffeine and sugar. It's going to be a good time. Oh my god, I can just imagine the amount of dice that are going to be thrown around that place with all the shakes from the caffeine. <laughs> hey, speaking of dice, and speaking of uh, Dice Tower contributors, do you see the podcast announced that they're in their final 10 episodes, the long-running Dice Tower podcast, they're in their last 10. Tom and Eric are going to focus on video content, I understand. Yes, and now our plot to take over the podcasting world begin. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm sorry, we weren't supposed to tell that to people, were we? Well, for real, though, uh, hey, listeners, spread the word of Level Up. You know, there's there's going to be, what, millions of people now looking for something to listen to. So hopefully you tell them, come and give us a listen. Yeah, and we definitely appreciate everything that they've put out there and recorded. I mean, a lot of people would not be in this hobby if it were not for them. So Tom and Eric, hey, all the best to all your new adventures and hope everything goes really, really great for you guys. Mm-hmm. Now, on a little bit of a lower note here, but another podcast it's that we are friends with some of the contributors. A near and dear uh, show the to secret both of us. Ca- oh, yes, yes, very much so. Uh, the Secret Cabal Gaming Podcast. Jamie has been dealing with some health issues. I don't really want to go into them. I'll let people go to their Facebook page and take a look at it or BGG page and see what's going on. I know that his wife is giving updates to people as well as to uh, what's going on with his health. He's starting a, a battle with with a, a, a really rotten disease. We just want to share our thoughts and prayers for him. I know a lot of people are cheering him on, mm-hmm. hoping he gets through this quickly. I've spoken to Steve from there and asked how anyone could help, and he just said, Send words of encouragement to him to the Facebook page on BGG, anywhere that you can contact the Secret Cabal. Send those well wishes to him. He read all of them, and those little things really do brighten his day. So, Jamie, kick this thing. We know you got it in you, and just get rid of it as quickly as possible. 
Just kind of got an email update. Nemesis lockdown is on the way. You know what that means? Not oh, only shut we up. have some lockdown to play, but you know, I told you we're gonna have to do our Nemesis review and then lockdown. Do them like back to back. That means we're gonna get Nemesis back to the table and then lockdown. Oh my gosh. I think I need to get a little vindication here. Sure. Yeah, I got <laughs> off the ship before it blew up. But knowing that your goal was to kill me yes, sir. through the whole thing, I, it, it still doesn't sit right with me. Now, speaking of Kickstarters, Boba Majong, we talked about this one way back when. It's one of our Kickstarter previews. Boba Majong from Tate Wu is back on Kickstarter. Scott, this is an excellent card game that you can get for, I think it's like 10 bucks. Those things are awesome there. Having nice little card games, things you can toss in your gaming bag and your backpack to have with you at any time. I know I just made some posts on um, Twitter and Facebook about being out, what kind of games you take with you whenever you just have a few minutes. It's great to have those kind of games you can take with you. Well, Scott, if we move on to recent adventures, I got to tell you what, man, I've been playing a lot of games. I had to narrow this list down to just two, and I kept it simple. Ready to move into some recent adventures? Let's do it. All right, I'm going to kick things off if you're okay with that. I want to start with a game called Summer Camp. Scott, Summer Camp is a 2021 game put out by Buffalo Games, designed by Phil Walker Harding. This is for two to four players, and it plays in about 45 minutes. Here we've got a relatively straightforward deck-building game that incorporates a board, which you know I love. And when I say straightforward, think base set Dominion. This is straightforward. So when you set up Summer Camp, everybody's going to get Camper Meeples. The game's got three paths on that board on which the Meeples are going to be traversing with the goal of getting each of them to the end of their trail. And there's like 15 steps on each of these trails. So some of the steps are going to have a bonus, like reach this spot, you get to draw a card, for example. And the first person to reach certain parts of each path with all three of their campers, they get a bonus merit badge worth a bunch of points. The second person is going to get a badge worth less and so on. What I like about the board is that the three paths, they're actually constructed with nine tiles, three in each row, and the tiles are randomized in each game. Now, this isn't going to add a whole bunch of variants from game to game, but it can make one of the trails have a whole bunch of like one type of bonus. Like, oh, this whole trail is a card drawing trail, while other trails might have different types, or it can produce a relatively balanced distribution of bonuses. So that little bit of uh, variation you get in your board setup with the nine tiles creating the three paths, a lot of fun there. The other element that Summer Camp does that I really like is in constructing your market for the game. So think Dominion. Everybody's got the same cards to start, and you take 10 random, what do they call it, the, the, the kingdom setup, where you have all the different cards yep. that you can buy. So in this setup, you have your basic cards in your deck, and then you have three different cards that can be purchased in any given game. Things will help you move your guys or help you get a little bit more spending power. But... When you set up your three paths, you're also going to pick three badges that campers are trying to obtain, like the cooking badge, the hiking badge, etc. Now, in doing so, you open that badge's box. The game has like eight or nine little boxes in it. So the cooking badge has its own little cooking badge box. And when you open that, that is the market for the cooking badge stuff. So you're going to take the cards out. You're going to shuffle it, put it off to the side of the board and flip two up. Those are the two or three. I don't. Don't quite recall, but those are the cards available that you can purchase that are unique to this game because you're shooting for the cooking badge. Now, does that mean that these are only going to move me on that path? No, but they can do things that are specific to that box. 
Now, this deck's going to be specific to one of the paths on the board. The badges from this box, like I said, they go at the end of that specific path, and you'll acquire the badge when your camper meeples reach it. And those, just like the other ones, will decrease in value as they're acquired by subsequent players. So in this way, your game might be set up with cooking, hiking, and water sports. That means you have three different decks, each with two cards revealed and added to the market, and these cards are specific to that deck only. So your next game that doesn't have water sports or cooking, you're not going to see like sailing or breakfast, for example. You're not going to see those cards <laughs> in that game. Now, most of the cards that you're going to play or purchase, they're going to provide you with some amount of energy, which is buying power, or they're going to move you along a path. In the case of the sailing card, for example, it moves you three spaces, but only on the water sports track. So it's extra movement, but only on that one track. As you purchase cards, uh, much like any deck builder, they're going to go into your discard pile. Some are worth points, some draw you extras. All the basic tropes of deck building games are in here. It seems like it's a, a, a very basic game where you're just moving along here, moving along the path, getting your badges. Mm -hmm. What did you think of it? I mean, did it hold your attention or was it just something that was just filling time? Um, well, I, I felt like I've seen it before. But, you know, I'm a sucker for deck building, especially whenever boards incorporated. I like it. I can't say that the game's anything special. It's not innovative. Uh, it doesn't do much to differentiate itself aside from having a specific deck for each of those badges. The cards are so straightforward, though, that it, it felt a tad too simple. Even a simple deck building game has a lot of strategy built in because you have to weigh the probability of seeing card, uh, seeing a card X number of times versus how much potential times left in the game. So it does have all of that. But where I think that they maybe missed the mark for me was in those various activity boxes. Here, you've got a chance to incorporate big changes to the gameplay, like picking an expansion or two to add to your base game of Dominion. That changes the game a lot. Right. Oh, well, yes. Yeah, very much so. The problem here is that there's not enough differentiation from one deck to the next. They each have a couple mm. of cards that are unique, sure. But then they also have uh, some cards that are going to move you three down their specific path or draw you three cards, and they get snapped up pretty fast but in this way while each game has some minor variables they're still essentially the same i was kind of hoping for a lot more variation than the game offered with those those little boxes but again i think they're shooting for an introductory style game here uh, this was one that you'll recall you can get it at target so it should be something that's simple enough to grasp that your mass market can can dive right into and i think they succeeded in that in that way you know what the components didn't do a whole lot for me either the card stock's pretty weak. Like, the cards are pretty mm -hmm. flimsy. I think after 10 plays, it's going to become really noticeable which cards in your deck are from the base deck and which ones <laughs> have only been used from those little boxes. But, dude, I mean, I want to say this thing was $25 or $22 on sale at Target. They're not, they're not selling this game on its production quality, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it seems like a lot of those games that are hitting Target right now have a nice combination of the mechanics that gamers know, mm -hmm. plus the ease of entry for new gamers. And that's a tough balance to really hit to be able to make everyone happy. I mean, it's always going to be something that, eh, this could be a little bit better for this person, this could be a little bit better for this person. But for what they're doing and what they're getting out there, I think still, it's a, it's a good thing that they're doing. 
Well, like I said, I like it. You know, it, it it's not one that I'm going to try and get back to the table. Where they succeeded, I think, is that for someone who's never done a deck builder, this is going to be relatively easy to dive into, and it's going to blow their mind with the different uh, decks that you can pull out from game to game. But for, uh, for we'll say, a more seasoned gamer, specifically the type that listen to a podcast, this probably is one that isn't going to knock your socks off. Well, that's Summer Camp by Buffalo Games 2021, game by Phil Walker Harding. Eh, decent, good intro, but probably not for your heavier gamers. Scott, tell me about a recent adventure. All right, so... Someone nearby here in this same podcast shared a <laughs> gift to oh, another person role. on said podcast. That person was Patrick gifting me a copy of Nemo's War. Yeah. Oh, I've said before, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is one of my favorite stories, movies. I think the Nautilus from the Disney movie is one of the greatest designs of anything ever built Looking at this, the Nautilus doesn't look like it. <laughs> and there's uh, not a lot of stuff to this as far as components. Just a lot of chits. A big board and a bunch of cards. There are um, a lot of chits, though. And with, yeah, with those there bars, are. The bag. With the boats and the treasures, the, the scoring markers. There's just wooden blocks to show that there's uprisings in different islands. Really not a lot to shout about. But oh dear God, did I love this game. Oh my God, I, I had so much fun playing this. You can look at this. Captain Nemo was just such an eccentric character that they wrote. He was an explorer. He was a scientist. He was someone trying to fight for the good of people. Now granted, maybe he didn't do it the right way, but hey, he still tried his best. In this game, you get a chance to play as four different types of Captain Nemo. Whether you're trying to wage war, if you're trying to explore, if you're trying to start uprisings with different countries. And each time that you play, it comes out, you roll some dice, you flip over an adventure card, and you take a look and see what happens. Mm -hmm. There are a ton of adventure cards, a special way that you set up the deck that goes through different intermissions each time you do it, it's going to be different. Sure, granted, you're going to go through the same cards over and over again, but the story is going to be different. There is some and variation. You're using some number from a, a larger deck of cards, but yeah, to your point, you'll see them. Oh, yeah. You there's, know, on your third, fourth play, you're going to start seeing some, some repeats. Exactly. But the story unfolds, and you have to read the text on it, the story text, mm -hmm. and it really gets you into this. And then you have these ships that are coming out in different oceans that are hunting for you. Do you want to attack them? Do you not want to attack them? Do you want to search for treasure? Do you want to go and try and find the lost city of Atlantis? So many decisions to go on here. This is a game that I had set up on my table that my wife just walked past. I'm like, oh, Heather, take a look. And she just stopped me mid-sentence like, no. Uh, <laughs> because there's just so much stuff on There this. is a lot going on um, on that board. This is not an entry-level game. I mean, it's simple to learn it. Once you get the idea of how it goes, it's not that difficult to play, but it's one that is very daunting to jump into. Mm -hmm. um, it's not one that you're going to like set up and, hey, let's play. This is one that you got to stop and think, okay, I'm going to have some time to set this up, keep this out for a little while. This might not be one that I can complete all in one turn, one play, 
it's kind of like an event game whenever you have a day off. Yes, you got to set up a date with yourself. But yeah, I'm so glad that you were kind enough to give me a gift of this, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Played it once, lost horribly, played again, and I won. You won? Unbelievable. I've never won. Oh, but there's a but. But, but. Whenever you win, there's two wins. You win either just amazingly well, or you win, it's almost like a... Like, yeah, you did enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you got over the points, but yeah, okay, we'll just say you won. So it's not as fulfilling as winning, but it mm-hmm. still draws you back in. I just took the, the game off the table and everything to get some other ones up there to learn, but I'm still just sitting there going, I need to get this out again. I can hear the thumping of the engines in the, in my mind, and I can hear Nemo ho- hollering the orders. Absolutely adored this game. It really was everything that I expected it to be. There's so many times that you get a game and you're just like, eh, this just missed the point. This one hit every single note I wanted it to be, and it was truly uh, a wonderful time playing this game and cannot wait to play it even more times excellent i'm glad to hear that we should point out this is uh this i mean it's a one or i think they say one to four players but right. if you're playing with more than one it's just okay it's your turn to be nemo and now it's your turn it's a solo game at heart this is yeah. a solo game takes about an hour hour and a half what you think of that artwork that's the no tool the artwork is spectacular i mean it's beautiful artwork But I think the thing that really works for it is being that it's an old story and just the simple artwork and like the just not a lot of colors to the the cards or anything, just like the drawing. It looks like you're looking at someone's journal. Oh, yeah. yeah. You see their notes that they've written down. So the flavor of the artwork, impeccable. I think Nemo's War does a really good job of balancing input randomness and player agency. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of randomness in this game, but it's not a result of your decision. It's more like you're given a random set uh, of things to deal with. Here's an event. Here's what your dice uh, roll was for your allocation of action points. And now that you have that that input randomness, now you have to decide what you're going to do with it. That's where the skill enters in. I think they balance that really, really well. I never felt like, wow, I just got screwed this game because of those events and those roles or the ships that came out. It always balances really nicely where you have this opportunity to, okay, I see what the variables are. How am I going to work with this? And it never felt like, well, the game's just punishing me with with the randomness. I I thought that Nemo's War, maybe that's why I've never won it. It definitely (laughs) rewards uh, skilled play and thoughtful decisions. You are really going to be sitting there, do I want to sail? Mm-hmm. Do I want to attack? Do, and each one has a good point to what you would want to do. Like, I could attack and clear things out here, but then I could search for treasure and help me out later on. Mm-hmm. I could do that. There's not one single easy decision. They're all equally difficult to make the decision as to what is going to be the most optimal for your play. Oh, and being able to risk your crew, risk your haul. Uh, oh, yes. You know what I mean? Uh, determine, like add points to your action that you're doing based on the what is those trackers at the top, where you can slide them to the right and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to gamble with my crew or with my hall and potentially lose points there, or flipping crew members over to activate their abilities. Like, well, that's mm-hmm. good, but then I lose that crew member. The thing I love about that is as you gamble with the crew, mm-hmm. your bonus gets lower and lower and yes. lower. 
As you gamble with your hall, your bonus gets lower and lower and lower. Like diminishing returns. As you returns. gamble with Nemo, it gets higher and higher, showing how bent on revenge and and passion that he's in. That the more you risk his mental stability, the stronger he gets. So it, once again, I mean, they really put their thought into this game. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. That's Nemo's War. I'm not sure if this was some sort of fundraiser or what it was. So <laughs> right. tell me about your next play. Yeah. Speaking of uh, submarines and Captain Nemo, I played Cash and Guns. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 2014 game from Repost Productions, uh, designed by Ludovic Mablanc. Okay, so Cash and Guns, this is a party game in which four to eight players take on the role of gangsters who have just completed a heist, and now they're back at the warehouse, kind of looking over the loot and trying to divide it up, and that's where the guns come in. So think uh, think like Reservoir Dogs, I guess, is what they're shooting for. Well, yeah, yeah. So when starting the game, everybody's going to get a foam pistol as well as cards to represent whether or not their gun is loaded. So you've got a bunch of cards, three of them say bang, five of them say click. Games played over eight rounds, and the way to play is really simple. Start of a round, you lay the loot cards on the table. You got a deck of loot. So this is fine art, cash, gems. And then once you see it all on the table, you put down one per player. Once you see all that loot on the table, everybody's going to select either a click or a bang and put it face down in front of them. That's going to represent whether or not their gun is loaded, right? Mm-hmm. The boss player, which is basically whoever has a desk token, it's random at the start of the game. But from there on, it'll be in the loot. So the boss player can change. The boss is going to count to three. And three, two, one, go. Everybody at the table is going to point their pistol at another player. Now, this is where it gets tense. Everybody's sitting there with, with these little foam pistols pointed at each other. The boss can have a player point their gun at someone else. So the boss looks around the table and says, you, you're pointing that gun at me? No, point that over at Jerry. Then the boss is going to do another count to three for players to decide if they're sticking around to get that loot or if they're going to chicken out and run away. Basically, if I have three or four pistols pointing at me, there's a pretty good chance that at least one of those people used a bang card this round. So I might want to get the heck out of there. It's pretty nice how the game works with this runaway mechanism. See, everybody's got a big old standee in front of them. That represents your character. You get that at the start of the game. And if you want to run away on that three, two, one, you just flick it, knock it over. That represents it. You ran away. You won't take a wound if you've been shot, but you also aren't going to get any loot. Oh, wait a minute. Take a wound. What does that mean? Well, if you get shot in a round, you take a little wound, your guy falls over, you don't get any of that loot and take three wounds, you're done. So everybody that's still in the round shows whether they have a click or a bang card in their pistol. And if you were targeted by someone that chooses a bang, like I said, you take that wound and you're out for the round. All the players that are still in the round that didn't get shot, didn't run away, they're going to divide up that loot, taking one at a time, starting with the boss. And as I mentioned, every round, the desk that that represents the boss, that's in the loot pile. So somebody can say, you know what, I don't want uh, the money card. I don't want that gem. I'm going to go ahead and become the boss. So they take the desk. That's basically it. And after eight rounds, whoever collected the most value in treasure and cash and whatnot is going to win the game. I've played this game before myself. I'm interested in what is your take? What makes this game work for you? I love it. You know, we, we did this one over Christmas break. You know, we had the old uh, people that I used to work with. There were 15 of us. So, we okay, let's uh, – we need eight. We need eight. Who's in? Uh, we did this one a couple years ago, too. I think it's going to become an annual cash and guns at the Christmas party. There's almost no learning curve here. 
you don't need to be a gamer to understand how to play. And man, every time you play, it's going to pull out the laughs and everybody's going to start talking tough and bigger. I like to hold my gun sideways like I'm a gangster. Uh, That is exactly (laughs) what I want in a party game of this nature. But it's not without some downsides. Strategically, yeah, you should be pointing your gun at whoever has the most loot so that other players can catch up. But inevitably, some players are going to get this like vendetta with each other. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. This isn't a game that takes itself too seriously. So for some players to get the fun out of the game from being silly and pointing the guns at each other and not from strategy, I mean, it's a 20-minute game. The points to have fun and it always delivers there. But I do think some are going to say that uh, this is an adult game or or it's got a troublesome theme because it has foam pistols in it. Look, I get it. Uh, Some folks want nothing to do with that. And that's perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that. But, man, I don't know about you, Scott, but since I was five, when I was playing outside with my brothers or neighbors, we were playing Army. Or Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. Or Predator. Every stick, every PVC pipe, old paper towel roll. When we were playing, it was a gun. That's what we played. Oh, I know. Yeah, I got you. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I got you. Uh, So it doesn't bother me. But for a lot of people, you know, if they take issue with a game that has us pointing toy guns at each other, that's perfectly okay. You know, you you might not like that. And there's that's that's acceptable. Avoid this game. You're probably not going to want it. Hey, I haven't taken it to a meetup. And I think it'd make for a heck of a scene in a public setting, uh, having a bunch of people pointing these uh, these foam guns. Plus, I don't think it's going to work very well with strangers. It's got to be people that you know. You know, if I barely know you, I'm not okay. We're, we're going to start pointing guns at each other. All right, then. Can you imagine? Uh, let's not take it to a meetup where Melissa's at because I'm going to just <laughs> shoot Melissa over and over. Why, Melissa? <laughs> Oh, she knows. She knows. I don't know. Oh, I don't really know either. But whenever I've played this game, I always had a good time with it where I wouldn't actually pick out if my gun was loaded or not. Mm-hmm. I would just put them face down and I would just draw one randomly. Ooh. So I'm like little Johnny who just got into the gang and it gave him the old gun that's been laying around in the corner for a while. You don't know if it's going to shoot or not, so it's completely blind, so you don't know what's going to happen. So sometimes it's that little bit there that makes it a little more fun for me whenever I've played You're introducing the chaos. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, that's from Repost Productions. It's a little bit older. 2014 game, Cash and Guns. Great game for four to eight. So if you have a bigger group and you want something that's going to take you under half an hour and draw out some laughs with some people that you've been friends with for a while, Cash and Guns is a hit. I haven't played in a while, and I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to do that again. Brave Adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP, L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. Scott, we're all over the place. We went to a summer camp, then we went under the sea, then we went into a warehouse, and now we're going back in time with Castles of Tuscany. Tell me about it. Yes, the Castles of Tuscany, this was a 2020 game designed by Stefan Feld. I had not played Castles of Burgundy, which this is kind of a sequel to. 
you are looking over your area of land in Tuscany. You're given three sections of a map that have hexes on them, mm -hmm. and they're all different colors on there. So you're going to place those together. You then have a player board that you have then as well next to you that gives you a list of all sorts of different actions that you can play. Mm -hmm. This could be anywhere from drawing cards, going to a quarry to get stone and marble, sending farmers out to do work. And the whole idea here is you want to fill up your map section with as many matching tiles as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. So that might be where you have to put a castle out and then you'll put out a quarry next to it. And there's a yellow next to it. So let's put out a wheat field next to that. Now, in order to do that, you are going to have cards that you're drawing. Now, the cards will have to match in some way in order for you to draw a tile to put on your map. Mm -hmm. So in order to put a tile on the map, you have to either have two cards that match the tile. Hey, simple enough. You get two red cards, you get a red tile. Or you can get two cards that match and one card of the tile that you want. So it could be two white cards, one red card, you can take that red tile. Mm -hmm. Or you can get two pair of any color to take whatever color tile you want. Each time that you place a tile on there, you'll get a bonus from doing things. You will also get a chance to put out one of your tiles. Each person has, I believe it's 24 tiles that you're going to replace the market with. That's your game timer. So once you get through eight of the tiles, that's the end of the first round. Figure out your score, boom. So you got 20 points that first turn. Mm -hmm. Fine. Well, then you go on to the second round. You play through, you get everything done there. Well, you got, say, 35 points that time. Well, what happens then is that 35 goes on to the 25, and it just keeps adding up. And it's interesting how the addition of the points keeps building as you play. There are different things where you can get bonuses to hold on to tiles later on whenever you want to play them. You'll get bonuses for pacing matching tiles next to each other. But everything is set up in a map, so everyone has a random map given to them. There's no way of setting up and saying, well, I'm going to set it up this way. You have very right. limited customization along the sides of the three different parts of the map that you put together. Mm -hmm. So it's really dealing with what you're given. Those kind of games I really enjoy because I think those really show what kind of gamer you are. If you're able to be successful at a game with what you're given and what you're dealing with, that shows you're a good gamer. That was always something that got me with, I, I always remember there was a uh, Warhammer 40k card game. Mm -hmm. I would always have this argument with this person at the shop where he would be buying cards on eBay to add to his deck. And I'm like, you realize you're just the monkey pulling the levers to make this machine work. You aren't putting thought into what is your best move. It was just one of those things that really bothered me whenever people would just build. I mean, and I'm sure you saw this. Was he like Magic net decking? Well. Like, I'm just going to go online and figure out what, you know, read yeah, about what's yeah. best and, and just go like, buy it? Deal with what you get. That Like with drafting, that was a great thing. I think that that is an amazing thing to show a constructive how well versus plays. a limited, yeah. And this is one of those things as well. You are given a set number of tiles. You put them together. That's what you got. Make the best of it. That's what I think really makes this game shine. We played it on New Year's Day. We went over to Jason's house after I was 
slightly mental and jumped in Monongahela River, but more on that later. <laughs> Great game. It didn't take that long to play, about an hour. My wife played with us, so it was teaching her and refreshing the uh, rules in my mind. It was just the right amount of time that it didn't outstay its welcome. Like, whenever it came to the end, you're really like, oh, God, I got to get this, I got to get this. And it had that intensity of you needed to get things done. But it wasn't like, oh, God, can we just finish this? Didn't ever um, say it's welcome. A good, satisfying playtime. Yes, yes. It really, really hit a sweet spot. Castles of Tuscany. Really, really great, fine-tuned game. It's interesting you mentioned Castles of Tuscany and Jason. He and I have been doing a little bit of Burgundy online. So maybe I heard you mention that you hadn't played Burgundy. Maybe we're due for a uh, level back episode soon. I think we may have to do that. I know he was talking about something on BGA there as well. So we might have to get the game of that in. Hey, Scott, guess what time it is? I'm going to say I'm gonna do it. it's the top do 50 it. games. It's the top 100. I was so close. Scott, we've got some falling stars through the ages, a story of civilization down two spots to number 62, which makes sense. Think games do that whenever a newer version comes out. Russian Railroads sure. down to 97. Tigris and Euphrates down to 98. Their time Ooh. might be limited. Nothing new in the top 100, but we do have some new highest peaks in there. Man, there's some big ones. Dune Imperium, imagine that. Yeah. Dune Imperium's up to number 21. 21. Clank Legacy is up to 30. Lost Ruins of Arnak up to 35. Eclipse Second Dawn is up to 39. Pax Pamir, 51. Lisboa is up to 60. Quacks of Quedlinburg up to 61. Paladins of the West Kingdom at 66. And Pandemic Legacy Season 0, number 83. Let's talk birthdays. Ready? All right. What do we got in the birthdays? Gaia Project, four years. Arkham Horror, the card game. You like that one. Five years. Orleone's been on there for six years. Caverna, the cave farmers, eight years. Eclipse, not second dawn, has been on there for 10 years. And Brass Lancashire, 14 years. Wow. Making the test of time there. Scott, we've got a review I'm really looking forward to. One that we got to play at PAX, and I've played it several times since. Really enjoyed Origins. Oh, yes, yes. I'm definitely looking forward to digging into this one. So let's do it. Designed by Adam Kwapinski and published in 2021 by Board and Dice. Origins First Builders is a strategic dice placement Euro game for one to four players. In the game, players will be making use of the dice they have to perform actions that will allow them to move up the military or zodiac tracks or build their city. Now, we always conclude our walkthroughs saying how there's more to this game than we just went over, but I want to preclude this walkthrough with that statement. There's plenty going on in a game of Origins First Builders, so I'm hoping this brief walkthrough will give you the gist of what's going on in the game. Let's start with the game's primary mechanism, and that is placing dice at action spaces at the top of the board. There are five plastic dials representing motherships at the top of the board. Under each of these dials, there are a couple of options for an action that you can take when you place a die there. Furthermore, there's a bonus space that's represented by one of the five colors of dice in the game. If you're using that color die, you may also take the bonus action. Anytime a player places a die in one of these spots, the mothership dial increases by one, and the restriction with these spaces is that you can only place a die there if its value is equal to or greater than the mothership dial's number. In understanding this concept, you know most of what you need to know to function in this game. 
Let's look at the action spaces though. I think that's the best way to understand the gameplay. First and foremost, I said every action space has a couple of options. The first option is basically to gain one of the four specific resource types. This is important because the second option typically requires some amount of resources. The first action space will allow a player to advance on the military track. This can allow for some quick bonuses, resources, and points throughout the game. The Zodiac action space allows you to move up one of three Zodiac tracks in the game. These tracks provide endgame points, sure, but they also provide an ability card for whoever's the highest on them, so there's some incentive to get them aside from just the endgame scoring. Next, we have an action space that will increase our population, basically gaining another die. The fourth space allows a player to exchange the food resource to move up the military track or increase the value of a die. Finally, the build action allows for placing a building tile. Now I saved that build action for last because that's where a big chunk of the gameplay takes place. See, when we set up the game, we have a stack of five different color building tiles, with one from each forming a market that's available for purchase. When taking a build action, you take one of those tiles and you place it in front of you, creating your city. Now these tiles have a benefit when they're placed, and endgame scoring cards want to see players placing them in certain patterns. That is, you might be incentivized to place two blue buildings next to a red one. You don't have to play this way, but there are some points up for grabs if you do. Okay, so now we have an idea of what those actions are, so let's go back to those dice that we're placing. Remember how I said that the mothership dial ticks up every time a die is placed on it? Well, at the end of the round, when players recall their dice back to their play area, each die is increased by one. This makes it easier to place, but eventually it'll be at a six, and when you recall a die that has a value six, it essentially retires. This makes for a few interesting decisions. First of all, you want higher values on your dice in order to have a wider range of options when you place them, but you don't have to lose them when they hit six. You have some options here. First, there's a big benefit to retiring multiple dice of the same color. After the first, let's say, red die that you've retired, each subsequent retired red die will score you points. Second, and perhaps an even better option, is to place the die in your city in a seat of power. See, when you select tiles to build your city, they're octagon-shaped, so when four of them are bumped together in like a square, there's a gap in the middle of them. You can place one of your dice there, essentially retiring it but it's going to re-trigger all of those tiles of the same color that it touches, giving you the bonuses again, as well as scoring endgame points. Play will continue until one of four endgame conditions has been met, at which point scores are tallies and the high score wins. Of course, there's a ton that I didn't even begin to touch on in this walkthrough, such as building towers, using discs as determined by city scoring cards during setup, or the variability of the game based on what Zodiac cards are available, or the drafting dice at the beginning of the game. But I hope I've met the goal of giving you an idea of how a game of Origins will play when it gets to your table. We had it on our table, but will it be back? How did we feel about this one? Gear up! It's time for the 8-bit breakdown of Origins First Builders. They came to this planet and they chose you. They uplifted your people and promised great prosperity. They provided the wisdom and the resources to build your cities sky high. They taught you the ways of culture, science, and warfare. They promised knowledge for any willing to learn. Come, Archon. Guide your citizens to victory under the watchful eyes of the builders our benefactors from beyond the skies above.
Thank you, Patrick, for your run-through of the rules and how to play Origins, the first builders. So, we're going to take a look at this and go through it and start off first with Art and Components. Patrick, what did you think of that? Bit number one, Art and Components. Scott, let's start with the graphic design of this board because I love it. Everything is remarkably clean and easy to understand. Your player boards have inset areas for your population and for your dice. It made everything pretty easy to track. The majority of components from there are dice and discs. Uh, obviously, those dials for the motherships were pretty sweet, and everyone had a little mini for their Archon. Can't go wrong with that. Resources, on the other hand, they're just chits, uh, nothing special but functional. I gotta say, though, did you notice the food and the gold were really close in color? Like, I kept, when I would spend the food, I'd put it back in the pile and be like, oh, wait, I put that in the gold pile by accident. Yes. And you know what? There wasn't enough gold. The one, the gold one tokens, we ran out of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could see you running out of fives or something, but the ones, that was that was an odd thing to run out of. Tiles for building your city. Uh, some of them have the same name, but there's multiple copies of, say, the obelisk. Did you notice they had different art for each obelisk, even though they're functionally yes, the I same? Yes, I did. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Um, this is a game, though, where those tiles are going to be cycling somewhat often, and each of them has some print on them. You got to know what's available. So there's some regular reading and refreshing your brain when that market of tiles shifts. And the print's kind of small, so you're not going to be reading it from across the table. You're going to be standing up. Like, oh, what's that one do? What's that one do? I don't know that there's a way to change that because for practicality's sake, the tiles need to be a certain size. You can't you can't have giant like dinner plate sized tiles <laughs> for the game. But uh, uh, all in all, I was pretty pleased with the components. I agree with you wholeheartedly on just about everything you said there. I love that the city tiles, like you said, even if they're named the same, they have different artwork on it. And it's nice, clean, really wonderful artwork. The motherships were an interesting bit there. I loved how you turned it. The only thing I wish that they would do with that is whenever you're looking at the dials and the die faces mm -hmm. on the motherships, they blend in so well. And... I don't know what would be the best way of doing it to just bring out those die numbers a little bit, like just make the dots black or something like that to make it easier instead of having to get down sideways to the board to have the light shine across in just a certain way you can read it. That's a little nitpicky thing. I mean, other than that, I mean, yeah, I really, really like. you're right, though. What they did with this. It's like a little circle, and it's got six different die faces on it, each one showing a number of pips. But it's, say, a, a purple piece of plastic with a, you know, purple imprint of a die with, say, five little purple pips sticking up. It'd be, I guess you could take a permanent marker and just, like, put a dot on the top of each pip and right. make it pop a little bit more from across the board. Uh, a nitpick, like you said, but, you know, it's important to point out. And the one other thing also, there was the burgundy and the red, I think it was, that they were just so close in color. And this was a, a tough thing because I was looking at it and trying to think of a person that would be colorblind or something. They're so close and there's nothing that you can look at that really differentiates which one's which. Yeah, they don't also have a symbol, for example. Yeah, and it's just something that's a little bit difficult that I think would really make this game accessible to everyone and make it so much easier. I know uh, I played Blackout Hong Kong, mm -hmm. and it had one of those things as well, too, where the red and the burgundy, I think it was as well, were so close. It was so difficult to 
nail down what what one did and you'd be sitting there thinking oh i got this all set play that wait no that's burgundy not red it can and take you out of the immersion in, in the game experience so, yeah yeah something like that i mean they could have easily used another color for that i think and hopefully in like another printing or something they may look into doing something like that well, let's move on to bit number two, theme and immersion. Scott, what do you think? This is a, kind of a mechanic, a mechanism forward game. You get more mechanical immersion here than you, like, you're not going to be telling yourself a story as you're playing Origins, huh? I looked at this here and first thing I have here is I like the, all right, here we go. I'm going with Grady Audio with the finger quotes. I like the story, but I never really felt immersed in the game. It seemed like there was just a bunch of actions that you had to do to get a high score. I didn't really feel how they all work together where you're going to go to war or you're going to build a city or you're going to do this. There was nothing that really tied in for like a whole connective type of story here. It was just, yeah, like you said, a mechanic here, a mechanic here, a mechanic here, a mechanic here. You put them all together. Yeah, you're going to get a score. But that was pretty much it. But it didn't take away from my enjoyment of the game. I liked how they all worked, each on their own, mm -hmm. but there was nothing there that just kind of meshed together as one big type of game. Yeah, it's it's billing itself as a civilization game, and it does, it certainly doesn't feel like a standard civilization game. It's no. more of like a like an optimization puzzle using these dice, using the numbers on the dice, using your city layout, using the cards of the Okay, so for example, if I look at the five point scoring cards for city layout, one might want to see two reds and a purple next to each other. No part of me is like, oh, that represents me building the wonder or, you know, and the game doesn't even suggest that. It's strictly get things out in this color. Now mm -hmm. you can get mechanical immersion from that. Like, oh, I got to keep this in mind. And I also want to make sure that I'm using this die to sit on the seat of power between them. And like your brain starts going and you can get lost in the mechanisms, but not because you're building a civilization. In fact, I think at some point Tom looked over and he was like, oh, what's the theme of that? And... <laughs> <laughs> I had to remind myself, not only are you building a civilization, but you're doing so with the intervention of extraterrestrial beings, which is represented by those motherships. Uh, that's not coming forward through the play of the game. That's I still love the game. It's just not one that I'm breaking out because I want to get lost in its theme. Yeah, it's not like you're building a city and thinking, well, I'm going to have the obelisk in the center <laughs> and then I'm build the <laughs> city halls around. No, no, mm -mm. it's two yellows and a red and that's it now with bit number three we have the complexity so was this complex enough for you or what did you think of this definitely complex enough for me origins is going to demand a learning game i think i know i had to see everything happen a couple of times to sort of wrap my head around it but nothing on its own is really difficult we had Jimmy join us for one of the plays, and on his first play, he mentioned he didn't have time to watch a walkthrough and i told him dude no big deal after a turn or two Aside from some reminder questions, you're going to understand how to do everything in the game. The complexity, like with most, is being able to put it all together. And it's a little bit tougher with Origins because, you know, we take a, a lot of games. We've said this before. Well, nothing in it's hard. It's just figuring out how it all works together. Well, that's true with Origins too. But when I say nothing in it is difficult, we're not talking about two or three little things. We're talking about seven or eight little things. There are a lot of very simple things that, oh, wait, now how do I do that simple thing? How do I do that simple thing? What's the relevance? How do I make that work? 
Origins doesn't have any of those edge cases. It doesn't have exception rules. And I think because of that, they're able to cram a lot of these mechanisms and triggers into a game without making it overwhelming. But I do think it's definitely on the heavier side of medium weight. What did you think? It really is like we're almost two parts of the same brain. I do feel that is a step up from your typical entry-level Euros. This is not one that you want to, hey, you like games? Have you ever played a Euro? No. Let's play Origins. No, it's not one that you want to do that to somebody. But it's not a difficult game once you get the terminology down and what you can do on a turn. Once you get that down, like you said, you get a lot of choices to encourage you to make difficult decisions like, do I want to go to war? Do I want to build a city? You have a lot of those little kind of mini games, if you will, mm -hmm. that you're playing at this. But there it's was a never a point it. that I felt I was paralyzed with uncertainty about what I should do next. I can do this, this, this. They were all important. There was nothing that really stood out that I should do this. Now, I kind of ran away with the war. The military. The yeah, you were the highest on that military track. But I didn't really ever see that be something that was like, wow, this was a game changer. It, it felt underwhelming really by stood the out. Yeah, it never really stood out as being that this was the key to winning the game. You go all out on the military. I still enjoy playing it, and I, I definitely want to play it a number of more times. But I don't know if there actually is one mechanic that will let you run away with the game. So it's it's kind of an interesting one to play with there. A nice balance, anyway. Well, having mm -hmm. said that, let's move to bit number four. Now, things have changed a little bit. We'll get into the changes right now. Bit number four and five used to be the rulebook and then the learning curve. Scott, we changed that a little bit. Adventurers, we found that we were talking a whole lot of details about the game, but we didn't get to indulge ourselves in, like, for example, Scott, you were just talking about the military track and how it worked out for you. Well, that doesn't really tie in with complexity. We wanted a bit where we could say, where's the meat? of the game. So it used to be bit number four was the rule book and five was the learning curve. We've changed that. Now it's going to be bit number four will be the rule book and the learning curve. They kind of tie in anyway. Bit number five becomes where's the meat? And we'll get into that. I feel like playing the Arby's guy. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's Wendy's. It's Clara Peller. And the re it, I cannot believe that I remembered her name right now off the top of my head. Dear God, I live a weird life. <laughs> Wait, what about when Clara Peller? I don't get it. Where's the beef? So you're saying Arby's with we have the oh, meats. Oh, okay. Okay, I get it. Yeah, Arby's had we have the meats. <laughs> Wendy's <laughs> Wendy's was uh, the woman going in to look at the burger. Where's the beef? And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? This and must be a commercial from before my... Wait, you remember the individual? Was, was this individual famous? Oh, God, yeah. She was famous for just saying, where's the beef? Unbelievable. Scott, let's talk yep. rulebook and learning curve. I did the rulebook for this one. So we have a nice big rulebook with all the hints and examples that I would want. Towards the back of the book, you're going to find your solo mode, followed by a three-page appendix, which is going to clarify any confusion you might have over any building tile, zodiac card, symbol that you might run into. Learning curve? Well, that's a different animal. What'd you think? The learning curve, yes, that was definitely different. There was a lot of going back to the rule book, going to that appendix, taking a look like, okay, is this do this, this do this. So there's a lot of things that are a little bit, what do I want to say here? Not 
completely clear for you to play the game just right out of the box boom let's play mm -hmm. so it definitely like you said it takes a learning game to play through this yeah. play through a whole game then you feel a little more confident then play it another time then you kind of fine-tune everything i think probably the third time around you will have everything down and you'll be able to just run through it and then really enjoy this game. start owning in on strategies you really do yeah. need that full game under your belt we were lucky enough to learn this one at pax so like that initial learn yes. learning sequence we got that out of the way and we didn't play the entire game at pax we got like i don't know we played for about an hour i think it was like okay we learned it i was like and i'm buying this one and we moved on breaking it back out i'm glad that we got to play a complete game because you got to see how all the dots connect. And then in subsequent plays, I'm able to say, okay, now I'm going to try and pound that military track. Now I'm going to be the guy that uh, tries to climb up these Zodiac tracks. And you can see where the end game scoring is going to going to show, okay, here's what you did. And here's how it paid off for you in the end. It unlocked some depth that I think was a little unexpected from our half play at PAX. And mm -hmm. it, it's kind of opened the game up for me. Like it's one that I'm pretty sure is going to become an evergreen on the shelf. Let's move on to our brand new bit number five. Where is the meat? Well, for mine, I say the meat is in the dice. Mm -hmm. Whenever you roll the dice and put those into place as your workers and they tick up, each turn showing that they're getting older and more, I mean, they're getting more powerful, but you know, they're going to burn out like a shining star whenever they hit the six. That is the most interesting thing, taking that out and placing it to make your move as to where you're going to go and what you're going to do with it. That is the most important part you need to have a good grasp on. Mm -hmm. You get a good grasp on how the dice are going to work. You're in good shape. If you're a little bit lost on that part there, the whole game can kind of fall apart around you and you aren't going to have a good experience. So once you get the dice under your belt and you feel comfortable with that, that is the meat of the game where everything hinges on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when those dice do start ticking up and you have to decide if, you know, when you retire them, are you going to use them to, uh, to set them on a seat of power? For endgame scoring based on mm -hmm. your tower size versus the the die numbers, the pips in the seats of power, which I'm pretty sure that's the primary way of getting boatloads of points at the end of the game. Everything else beyond that is like, okay, how are you supplementing it? So I do think that like that's the grand strategy, maybe that or the Zodiac track. But the way that things shift in value is is going to force players to make tactical decisions too. Sometimes even prioritizing the tactical over the strategic decisions you mentioned earlier with that military track, you know what's occurred to me in, in playing beyond that game that we played in, in subsequent plays that I've had is some of those red buildings are going to give you some ticks up the military track. And I well, that then I'll have to explore whenever we get a chance to play it again. Yeah, yeah, I, I think moving up the military track based on buying the building so that you're doing both at the same time, buying a city tile, adding it to your city, moving up that track, and then whenever you do the seat of power and you get to re-trigger everything that's adjacent to it, it's like, oh, then I could move up more. Like I think there's ways that they want you to move up the military track without having to do so exclusively by taking the military track action. I think that there's ways to move up that Zodiac track without waste, not wasting, but using a die for the move up the Zodiac track action, because some of those, those blue city tiles will let you move up. So I think that they want you to build your city to move up other tracks based on what you've built. I'm not sure we're not there yet, but it just goes to show, you know, this, this is an optimization puzzle that has the meat everywhere. There's, it's like mini games all over the board. 
Well, I think that leads really well into our next bit, the replayability and variability of this game. Like you said, there's so much going on with these mini-games, you don't know what one you want to optimize on to make things work. Mm -hmm. You really have to balance each and every one of them. There's a lot of replayability and variability, I think, in the game. A lot of it, like you said, with the city, building the city, whenever you do that, and building your towers of power, there's a lot of different things with that. And it's something you don't really think about, but yeah, balance is such an important part of this game. Being able to balance the Zodiac and the military and the building of the city and all these different things, it's, it's a tricky game there. And I love the fact that we went to that booth to pick up another game and this one here just kind of like spoke to you and let's get this one. Yep. Let's get this one. You know, it, it has a, it has plenty of variables leading into any given game. How you want to shape the tiles that you place into your cities, as in what patterns you want to make. How many towers are available? So there might be more orange tower discs available at the start of one game than another, based on those cards. I think the biggest one might be the Zodiac cards that are available. There's three spaces for a Zodiac card, and there are 12 different ones. And you know what? There's enough variables in this game to make it different, but I think those Zodiac ones, are that's where you're going to have enough influence to really change the shape of the game without any of these variables though if you had a static setup i think that the game's meaty enough that you're going to get replayability simply from jumping back into that complex puzzle and putting the pieces together again uh, lots and lots of variables and i think plenty replayable this will become an evergreen and when i say an evergreen adventure is uh, you may have heard me reference this before there's like 20 games that i'll regularly go back to i have a big old collection of games but most of them i told jimmy i'm renting them i have it for a few months we play it a few times and then i sell it on some games they get to boot somebody out of the out of the collection out of the evergreen the staple <laughs> that comes back to the table this is looking like one that's going to do so but before i get too far ahead of myself let's talk about downsides well the downsides like I said, my biggest one was the military track. But then I, thinking about it, I could probably tack this on to each one of the different sections of the game. And this is tough saying it's a downside because it's an upside as well. You have to worry about the balance of this game. You can't kind of focus on one thing to do. You can't play something and optimize it and feel good. And like, if you're playing Seven Wonders, you can go with building the wonders, just getting the points, just going with the sciences. You kind of have to do that in order to to get a good score. This mm -hmm. one here, I'm going all military, but that's not your optimal thing. Well, then I'm going to go with the seats of power. Well, that's good, but not everything. It's a, a dichotomy of being both good and bad, but they all come together to be good. If that makes sense, I don't know. I'm I'm confusing myself. No, right now, I, even. I, I'm I'm hearing what you're saying. I I think a good paraphrase might be: you can't fall too far behind in any one area. Yeah. You can That's you can narrow focus on one yes. thing, but that can't you cannot be allowed to ignore other things. You, you know, you're 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 pounding on one aspect of the game cannot be at the expense of a different part of the game. Exactly. Yes. Now, I know my downsides were a little cryptic there, but uh, did <laughs> you have any downsides to this? Scott, there's no way around it. This one's a long one, huh? What would we go, it, two it, hours it, plus? It is. I mean, whenever we were playing it, I was having fun, but I'm still kind of looking at it like, okay, we're almost there. We're almost there. <laughs> 
I wouldn't say that it overstays its welcome. You know, it's a substantial game and you're doing enough that the the time went by pretty well for me. That I think maybe the biggest holdup is that you do have those five city tiles and they're regularly rotating and people need to like if you're gonna play well, you got to know what they do. So you mm-hmm. have to regularly like everybody takes a moment and looks them over, reads them. There's no sense like reading the the top two before your turn or refreshing your mind. You get what I'm saying. People are gonna regularly be having to reference those and taking a, a moment and that can slow down the the pace of play a little bit. But that said, I think the game played in an appropriate amount of time. And also, I think the winners of our games so far have been those who greatly capitalized on the city scoring, which is leading me to that's the you know the the size of your tower times the number of dice that you have on your seats of power. I think that over time this is going to show that that's the primary strategy and everything else is a way to supplement it rather than that is equally as powerful as military or Zodiac or, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think time's going to show that uh, that's that's what you need to focus on predominantly and everything else supplements it. Having said that, let's move to bit number eight. Origins, the first builder. Scott, was it fun? And who's it for? After all that, yes, it was fun. I had a great time playing, planning my turns, what I wanted to do. Who's it for? Even though you look at each part and it's each game is a little bit lighter, like the military and the Zodiac and everything. Mm -hmm. When you put it all together, it's not going to be a very attractive game for someone who's new to gaming. People who gamed a lot. I feel that they would enjoy this one because it has that combination of all the mini games and all the different mechanics that you've learned from other games. That was one of the things whenever I started playing these that I loved whenever you got to that point and you go play games with other gamers and you get to the point where it's like you play Catan, it's just like that. Mm-hmm. And you play Dominion, it's like that. And being able to have those things that it's like that game, it's like that game. Whenever you have that type of experience, then that makes this game a, a lot easier to explain. Until you have those experiences, mm-hmm. it is going to be a little tough for someone coming into it and learning the game. This is definitely going to be a little bit higher than midweight euro. What did you think? I thought Origins would have fun. Oh, yeah. I have. I thought this game's phenomenal. I'll tell you what. It's almost certainly. Scott, we have our uh, top 10. Every every 10 reviews that we do, we go over our top five. And I can tell you this is almost certainly going to be in the top three. It's I had that much fun with it. It's got a classic Euro feel in that you're making careful decisions. You get rewarded when things fall into place as you plan. It's got a decent bit of player interaction for a Euro. So often the interaction in a Euro game comes down from taking something before someone else. In Origins, this happens in about six different places. Plus those Zodiac cards that can be really influential. There's that action oh, yes. space that lets you steal one directly for a turn. Even if you're not the highest on the track, you're playing your own game. But no doubt, your decisions are heavily influenced by the other players. I'm certain this is getting back to the table, and I'm actually looking forward to giving it a solo run. Who's it for? It's a lot like our last review, Corrosion. If your group likes a more complex game, if your satisfaction comes from careful strategic planning, you like a good meaty Euro. Games like a Coimbra, Brass, Cryo. I think you're going to love Origins First Builders. I think you just summed it up beautifully there. (music) 
Scott, one year ago today, we reviewed Everdell, a game where you're controlling a band of woodland critters doing a worker placement card game of resource management and fun little combos. We're going to stray away from our template because we just had this one back to the table with the Pearlbrook expansion. We're going to give a little breakdown of Pearlbrook. Talk to me, Scott. Well, yes, we got this out, and I was just kind of looking at it like you got to put the tree together, you got to put the berries <laughs> down, you got to do all this. Oh, you got to put the berries down. It's so awful. And then you, you <laughs> God, it takes so long to put everything together and, and make sure that everything's balanced and all that. But I was so happy that we did because I forgot what a delightful game this is. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on here where you're doing the worker placement, getting the resources to put out to buy different parts for your little village. Now with Pearlbrook, you're getting pearls to get extra little bonuses of these little places under the, I want to say under the sea, but under the crick. I don't know. Did you say crick? Um, That's so Pittsburgh. Oh, I said crick. Oh, that I'm makes me happy. Southwestern Pennsylvania. <laughs> It is just such a delightful game. The artwork is just absolutely beautiful. Whenever you're done, you look at it, you can imagine that is your little talent you have there. You could easily sit down there, if you had any sort of talent, which I don't, of writing a story of that little town of the innkeeper who's a badger and the tax collector who's a skunk or something like that. And it's just a wonderful little game. And I'm so happy that we were able to add Pearlbrook to it and play this this game. And there are even more expansions to oh, it yeah. we haven't gotten to. It's one that the expansions add to the experience of it. I'm anxious to see what the other expansions would be like if it makes it too much or if it enhances the game. It'll be something interesting to explore for the next time that we come back to look up, mm -hmm. look back. Yeah, Everdale's one that, uh, that we have seen all throughout the year. We saw it at the meetups. We've gotten in a couple plays ourselves. It's just so satisfying when you, when you get a combo of cards that work well together. You set up that efficient mm -hmm. little engine. It's a game that offers like eight or ten legit strategies that can be pursued and pursued effectively for the win. That's probably five more than most games out there give you. Let's break down a little bit about Pearlbrook. Here we've got action spaces with pearls. Those spaces feel a little narrow, especially when discovering them. Like, did you have the stuff to do this now? Okay, great. Here's a bonus. Otherwise, you just come away with the pearl. I thought that aspect of it was a little underwhelming, like with the, the frog ambassadors that you're placing uh, mm -hmm. on those spaces. But I love, love the wonders. Yes, yes, you can replace the events that they had from the old one with a little fair and different things like that, where you have a wonderful bridge now and uh, like a clock tower and this big fountain. Wonderful things that they did to improve on that. And they're those 3D cardboard assembled things too. They have a nice table presence. One thing that stuck out with base game Everdell is that sometimes you can feel like those last couple of turns are like closing out the game. What can I do to add a point or two? Not always. Uh, sometimes the king would be available or you're gathering the last couple resources to play the theater. But sometimes it felt like you did the big thing and now you're just kind of cleaning up, you know? Uh, the mm -hmm. monuments coupled with that, what were those ornament cards? The adornments? Were they adornments? Yes, yes. Everybody gets coupled with those. It feels like, okay, I still have this bit. I still have the giant laser <laughs> that I can do at the <laughs> end of, okay, I've acquired the big card. I got the king or I got the theater. 
oh, and I still have something else I can do. I like that. And it adds a little bit of asymmetry with those uh, with those adornments, doesn't it? Oh, it most certainly does. And it's interesting. You'll look at it, and then you don't go back to it. And then you're like, wait, what are these cards again? And then you look and see, oh, I have those. I can do that. <laughs> yes. So it's a pleasant little surprise that you have there. Everdell, we're chalking this one up still as a great game, fantastic, I highly recommend from Level Up, and if you get a chance, get that Pearlbrook expansion. We enjoyed it. Very much so. Hello, adventurers, and welcome to Lost Loot, the part of the show where you all join me as I show off the games that I have discovered deep in the depths of the tabletop dungeons. My name is Josh, and today I am proud to say we are about to go... Deeper than we have ever gone before. Four, 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 four. But before that, my fellow adventurers, I have an inquiry. Do you like steampunk? If the answer is yes, then do I have a treat for you. If the answer is no, then I still have a treat for you. The origins of the genre of steampunk date as far back as the 1860s, with dime novels such as The Steam Man of the Prairie to more popular and influential novels like The Time Machine. For a century, it was loosely coined as Victorian fiction, and it wasn't until the 1980s when this term steampunk was derived as an offshoot of the term cyberpunk. Which is fitting, as both genres share very similar themes, with the only difference, in my humble opinion, being aesthetic. My interest in this genre has recently heightened with the release of the show Arcane. For those who don't know, Arcane is a Netflix animated series that takes place in the League of Legends universe. The show is a beautiful blend of high fantasy, steampunk, and biopunk mixed with beautiful animation and, might I say, some of the best fight scenes I've seen in an animated series. And with all that said and done, it created my favorite show of 2021. Still riding that wave, I found myself at my FLGS, like I often do on a Wednesday night, in the used game section when, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted a small tin box. One look at the artwork, and I'll admit, the price tag as well, and I knew I was in. And with that purchase, today, adventurers, I present to you a game that comes to you at a BGG ranking of 8,649. The game is Strife, Shadows and Steam, a two-player area majority card game released in 2016, designed by Christopher Hamm and published by V3G Studios. In the game of Strife, your goal is to gain the most points over a series of rounds. You do this by playing cards and using those cards' special abilities to gain more power for the card you played, or less power for the other player's card. The player with the most power wins the base and takes those points. In setup, players are given a matching hand of 10 champion cards, each with a numerical value and two special abilities. The first ability is called a battle ability, and the second a legacy ability. After that, players shuffle a deck of base cards and lay that deck in the center of the play area. They then reveal the three top cards from that deck and place them from left to right in the play area. Each of these bases contain a point value and a special condition that players can use in consideration during play. During play, players will simultaneously select a champion from their hand and play them at the leftmost base. After revealing them, the player at the highest printed value on their card goes first. The player will then activate the champion's battle ability and resolve any effects they may have on the playfield. The second player will then follow suit. After this, players will look at the champion they played in the previous turn and activate that champion's legacy ability. Players will then count up total power achieved during that turn, and the player with the highest amount gets the points for that base. Players will do this until all cards in their hands are played, signifying the end of a round. Players will do this for three rounds, and whoever has the most points at the end is the winner. 
Now this game is very reminiscent of games like Smash Up Airland Sea. Play cards at a base, and when it's time to collect the benefits of those base, it goes to the player who had the most points, power, whatever you want to call it, at that base. And that is a genre I tend to enjoy a lot. I have the big box, you know, the giant geekier box for Smash Up. It was basically one of my first gateway games, and I continue to collect expansions to this day, and I still play this game to this day. It's awesome. And then you got smaller games like Airland Sea, which is a much more streamlined version that still has that tight feel of, you know, playing cards on a play area, going back and forth, and has the benefit of being really great at two-player. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on these games, but it's a good baseline, <laughs> no pun intended, for what Strife is like. I personally really love this game for the reason that it's a little more complex than Airland and Sea, because Airland and Sea is very streamlined, but a little less chaotic than Smash Up. It rides a very good sweet spot for me. The theme is outstanding. It's a steampunk. If you don't like steampunk, you can just appreciate the really gorgeous artwork. I love, love the artwork in this game. It's steampunk-ish, but it's done in a really cool, I would say almost watercolory, but I'm no artist. It's probably not watercolor. That's probably not the right term for it, but it's done in a, in a style that I really like. That makes the character, each individual champion and character pop. And the mechanism of area majority playing cards is fun. I especially like the idea of doing legacy abilities and battle abilities. You know, when you play a card initially, you use the champion's battle ability. Each of them are unique. Each of the ten characters are unique. And they each do different things. What makes it fun is that you also have to consider, okay, I'm pretty much planning out five or six turns ahead where I want this character's legacy ability to be. Because once you play that champion's battle ability, it gets discarded for all intents and purposes and becomes your legacy champion. And so on the next turn, when you get to the part where you use the legacy abilities, that's your next card. And so you got to make sure you're pairing up these cards good so that you get the most effective turns as possible. I use the term combo-tastic a lot when I describe these games. And a game where you're using air majority and you have good combo-tastic options is a win. And this game has plenty of combo-tastic options. Almost to the point where, for some players, it can be a little overwhelming. My wife personally did not like this game because of that overwhelming sense of all these combos can interact so differently with different things. And then you have the bases, which also have different things you have to consider. It's, it was a little much for her and for her taste, but I personally thought it was fantastic, taking all of those abilities into consideration to make the best turn as possible. It's a great production as well. Tin box. It comes in a tin box. Some people, I'm kind of included, I don't like tin boxes for my games, so things like you know, Forbidden Ireland or Sushi Go. Not the biggest fan, but I think for this one it works. I think it was a good choice. It fits the steampunk vibe and the theme and what they're trying to get this game to portray. You know, overall, it's a really good production and a game that I really enjoy, like I said before. But why is it Lost Loot? Why did I decide to bring this game up? Despite the fact that it's 8,000 on BGG, it really comes to the downsides of the game why it's Lost Loot. The rulebook is not very well done. It's not a very hard rulebook. But it is not laid out great, and it is not written well. There are lots of vague things that are left open to the player's imagination. There are some terms on the cards, like exchange, play, return, that aren't necessarily explained in the rule. And that may not seem like a big deal. For me, it wasn't a big deal, because I've played enough games where I can kind of figure out what it's trying to portray. But for newer gamers who are just picking up a small box, it's actually a big deal. Those can mean a ton of different things. These are terms that we need to know what they mean, and the rulebook doesn't explain that. And so I had to do a little bit of digging into, you know, BGG forums and how to play videos in order to get how it actually would work. 
The other thing is that the length. The rulebook says play for three rounds. The game says 60 minutes, but it took me and my wife, once we got the game down, it took us 45 minutes to get through one round after doing all the combos and reviewing everything. This is kind of a little thing I want to go on for any people who are either wanting to make games or looking at games is that make sure the rulebook is good. We've talked about rulebooks before, and that's something that King Scott and Patrick are really good at. They talk about the rulebook and the 8-bit breakdown. Rulebooks are essential. With games like Mega Pulse, which I really love, and the rulebook is extremely clear, I can read that and know exactly what I'm doing. But you look at games like this, which the rulebook is not clear, and it kills the game. There are so many great games out there that are just killed because of a bad rulebook. An unclear rulebook. Even games like Corrosion, which Scott and uh, Patrick recently covered. For me, when I was looking at the rulebook, it was really hard for me to understand what was going on. And I wasn't even one reading it. I was just referencing it. But it took me a while, and everyone who was at the table playing that again a while to actually get what was going on. But once we understood, a really good game was revealed. Your great game could be masked by a bad rulebook. I don't want that to happen to your game. I don't want that to happen to any game. I want a good game to come forth, have its time in the sun, find a fan base like I think Strife deserves. It's a fun little system that I want to play with more people. I want to play this game with more people, but nobody knows about it. The game is lost loop because the rulebook was not thought through as well as I believe it could be, and the game length was not considered well enough. Because of that, this game has fallen to the wayside. V3G Productions, the publisher behind this, is now defunct. They only produced like three games, and one of them was actually a prequel to this game called Strife Legacy of the Eternals, which, you know, I'm looking for a copy for. If anyone has that, feel free to reach out to me. I'll be happy to talk to you. But I highly recommend Strife Legacy Eternals. If you see it, I got this game for five bucks. Pick it up, give it a play. I think it's well worth the effort of going through. Hey, reach out to me. I will teach you how to play this game and clarify any rules mistakes or anything you might understand just so I can get more people playing this game. That's going to do it for today's episode of Lost Loot. Again, I reach out to you, all of you adventurers. If you have any Lost Loot, contact me. I want to hear from you. I'm on the Board Game Geek forums at Boss 3 You can also find me. I'm pretty active on the Level Up Board Game Podcast Facebook chat. Send a message and say, hey, you should check out this game. And I'll do my best to try to find a copy, or if it's online, even better. I hope you all enjoy the rest of the podcast. And remember, when you are looking at a shelf of pre-owned games, keep your goggles clean. You never know when you might find some lost loot. Josh, as always, thank you for that lost loot segment. We're talking Strife, Shadows, and Steam. I've never played this one. You, Scott? No, I haven't, but looking on BGG and everything, it looks like an interesting world. This is one of those themes that I think are there, but they never really take over the steampunk feel that you always know there's steampunk games out there, but they've never really had their time to shine and like, ooh, this is the big thing now. I'd be interested in giving this one a whirl, given the complexity rating of two, so easy to get into. I'd be interested in trying it. Looks like you can pick up copies on BGG for 15 bucks and under. I might be, uh, we might have to give Strife a go. It looks very interesting. I mean, I'm looking at some of the artwork, and it looks like some of the steel mules from uh, Pittsburgh. Well, thank you, Josh, for that Lost Loot segment adventures. Don't forget, if you have something ranked below 1,000 on BGG, especially if you're going past the top 5,000, get something real deep. If you've got a suggestion for Lost Loot, shoot us a message. We'd love to feature uh, some, some interesting games that may have been forgotten. 
Adventures today's discussion is going to be some questions. We've got a few questions in the mailbag. Don't forget, you can go to our website, levelupgamepodcast.com. On the main page, you'll see this little yellow box says, ask a question. That's where you do so. And we've got three to go over today. You ready, Scott? I am all ready to go. I'm ready to just dump my thoughts on people. (laughs) (laughs) Marty says, in recent years, the board game industry tends to have trends in themes. For a long time, it was zombies, and it seemed to shift to Vikings. Right now, I think we're in the dinosaur craze. What do you think might be next, or what do you hope is next? I think you nailed it with dinosaur craze. That's definitely uh, the in thing right now, but I would say it's, I think dinosaurs are shifting out a little. We got to be on the tail end of dinosaurs. Yeah, because you come out with Dinosaur World and Roaring Right. So I think it's just like this last bunch that came out was like boom. I think and I love now the, then, the legacy game. That's that's going to be the the swan song. I think so. I really do think so. Yes. Yes, woodland critters are still a thing. Like with, with Rude and Everdell, like people still love playing their the little woodland creatures. That's oh yes. yeah. I think that's something that will always be around because I mean. Stop and think about Watership Down is still a book and things that people know about. And that's all about Rabbit. You have Redwall with all the force creatures with that as well. Oh, yeah. Um, So you've got a lot of those things there that you can tap into that people have enjoyed since they were children. And being adults, they see that game and takes them back to that nice little warm spot of childhood to go back and play in. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we're kind of in a, uh, we'll say, a nature theme right now. We've seen a lot of nature games with parks and Baron Park and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all sorts of Cascadia we talked about recently. Right. A lot of games with uh, animals and, and nature, that, that seems to be a big selling point right now. If you, you know, make a game about not just woodland pretend critters, uh, but real critters. And I think you've got something at the moment. So what type of themes do you want to see? Boy, I, you know what? I'm still discovering that, like, getting to, uh, that's a tough question. What do we hope is next? I gave this one a little bit of thought and, like, I'll play anything. There isn't a theme that's like, oh, man, I really want to see this. There's some, I mean, most of the movies that I love, they already have a game. Like, there's a Predator game already. There's there's kind of a Tremors game already. What with um, Terror Below. Yes. Uh, so a lot of the movies that I like, they've already incorporated in, in some way. But you know what I thought would be kind of cool is historical themes becoming a little bit more mainstream. Mm. Um, for that matter, even like war games, like, okay, you're not going to go to a meetup, one of our meetups, and see people playing a World War II game because they typically are long games with soldiers on a map. Yeah, that's what, maybe Blitzkrieg. But I mean, honestly, most, I feel like most mainstream gamers, you introduce a, a World War II theme or a Revolutionary War theme, and they're like, oh, I don't want to play that. I want to play with my, my fox that has a backpack. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I want to play with my my cute woodland critters, which uh, that's fine. I do too. But it would be kind of cool if somebody would take, we'll say, Revolutionary War and make it a one hour, easy to get into type of game. Take something like Carnegie that we reviewed over the summer. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a historical thing, but it's approachable for everyone. Now, that was a complex game, but something like that, but not as complex. I could see that making for for kind of a fun trend, almost like a learn your history through one hour of board games or, or take games that are traditionally six hour epics and we're going to make them a much more approachable one hour game so that you get a wider variety of gamers giving them a try. 
That's a, a great point because, like you said, there aren't any that really stand out like that I can really think of off the top of my head. And I'm sure if someone knows, please let us know. Like a Revolutionary War, like quick hit game or a Civil War type of game. Something where you get like a full experience, but not we're going to sit down for three hours and move these things around this six foot table. Yeah, it would be something nice to have that. Now, I'm sure that there's somebody out there that's doing a civil war with woodland creatures right now, and it's not <laughs> hit Kickstarter yet. You know what? I'm glad you said civil war. My mom's a civil war buff, and, and I enjoy civil war history as well. It would be nice to play a civil war game that was not six hours long, and the players of the game were upper middle age or old men, old white men. You know, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to be able to take a civil war game to our meet up at the coffee shop. And everybody's, you know, the teenagers, the guys, the gals, everyone's getting in on it because it's a quick, fun game, not a tactical, skirmish, right, right. sit and thought for – not that there's anything wrong with that kind of game. I just – I think it'd be neat to incorporate these historical themes into more approachable games. Very much so. No, I think we've pretty much covered everything with that topic. So I'd like to go on to the next question that sure. comes from Kate. From listening to your episodes, it sounds like you guys have had meetups at local businesses, not just at gaming stores or at your own homes. I was hoping to do something similar where I live in Texas and was wondering how to go about it. Do I just call and ask? Uh, well, short and simple question is yes. <laughs> you can go on Facebook and you can look up community boards where you live. I know where I live, you can look up the little city community boards. <laughs> They have little businesses that pop up, specials that they have for lunch, this coming up. Oh, we have a new place opening up here. Whenever you find those, take a look at it. Shoot them a message saying, hey, I'd love to stop in. I like to play games. I'm thinking about trying to get a few people together and go play some games. Would that work in your shop? What's mm -hmm. the worst going to happen? No, it's not really for us, but I appreciate you asking. I mean, no one's going to come right out if they are a new business coming out saying, no, absolutely not. We hate gamers. Yeah, that's uh, publicity. They they want people in there. Exactly. That This gets so many faces into a business that they might not normally go in to see. So a lot of businesses would be happy with that kind of advertising. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't even have to be anything big to start out. Go with four people. Play a game. See how the environment fits for your games. Is it too noisy? Is it too packed? Are there not enough tables? Just seeing that you're playing a game, that may tick off in someone else's mind saying, hey, that's a great idea. We should bring in a game. You could start a whole thing just not even realizing that you're doing something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, take a look at community boards on Facebook. You can get a lot of information just from that. What do you think? You've done a lot of the background work with our meetups. What worked for you, Patrick? Yeah, well, I, I guess the obvious, th and Kate's not really looking for this answer, but if it's a gaming store, most of the time that they want you there anyway. And sidetrack, I won't say they, you know, any names or anything, but we do. We have a gaming store around here that you know I, I've gone to several of them and said, hey, you know, we're looking to do a meetup. We had that big one at the vault, had some thirty people there. You know what that does for the vault? That allows them to host thirty people, of which maybe twenty five of them have never been in their store before. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're going to sell five or six boards board games while they're there. They're going to sell a bunch of drinks and chips to these people while they're there. It helps to have something 
to offer. So for a board game store, well, that makes perfect sense. They're getting new gamers, potential client, you know, some clientele into their shop. They're going to host you no problem. And I said, well, say, we actually had a board game place around here say, yes, you can rent tables for X number of dollars. And I was like... <laughs> You realize if we don't show up, you ain't going to have 30 customers in your – you should be paying us. I didn't say that, but we're just not going to go there. But typically, yes. the game stores are going to be very receptive. Now, what about other businesses? Because we're doing a coffee shop. We've done a pizza shop. Have something to offer. So we're able to say – you know, we typically bring about 30 people with us. That's a lot of sales. And our giveaway is that when – I mean, we give away a couple board games. It's always – just buy some food and we'll give you a ticket mm -hmm. for a get. Like there's no charge. There's no charge to show up, get something to eat or get a couple drinks, get a ticket for a game. And so naturally they're getting sales from all these people, but have something to offer. You're looking at like our meetups, we go six hours. That is six hours of table space for what? Eight, nine tables. That's a lot to ask. And some places aren't going to be receptive to that. So make sure they have something to offer. Make sure you make them well aware of what you're looking to do, the length of time it's going to take, the amount of space. Accept the fact that some places are not okay with that, but you might be surprised with who's going to say, yeah, we'd love to have you. Yeah, just ask. That's the easiest thing to do. If they say no, hey, no skin off your back. I mean, it wasn't like you had 30 people there waiting to go in and then they say no. Give them a call. Like Patrick said, you'd really be surprised at what some people might say. Well, we got one more in the old mailbag. This one coming from Greg. Literally every reviewer has some amount of focus on a game's production value. The art, the metal coins, the minis, etc. You guys even lead your reviews with the art and the components. How much does art and components truly matter? If a game is great but it has poor components, does that hurt it? If a game is crap, but it's well-produced, does that save it? How much weight do you give this category when you review a game? Good question, Greg. What do you think, Scott? Yeah. Well, I would say that art and components have a lot to do with drawing me into a game. Boom. If the cover art doesn't grab me, there's a good chance, just being honest, I won't play <laughs> it. That being said, the artwork doesn't need to be photorealistic. Just something exciting draws in your eyes. Sentinels of the Multiverse. It doesn't have tremendous artwork. It works for what it is. Okay. But it's exciting and eye-popping. And once you play it, it's a great game. There's mm -hmm. a lot of fun in that. Summit is another one that some of the artwork, you may look at it and it's like, boy, those people just look angry that are climbing the mountain. Are they forced to climb that mountain? But, <laughs> but it's something that I enjoy the gameplay. I mm -hmm. mean, the gameplay drew me in. Right. Twilight Imperium has amazing artwork. I mean, gorgeous artwork. So we're going to the other end of the spectrum here. But it's not one that draws me in. And I'm not saying anything wrong with the game. It just doesn't scratch my itch for a game that I really want to play. Mm -hmm. It really is based upon what you want. We say what we like, and hopefully the people that are listening have listened for a while. And you might associate with one of us or the other so you know what we like. And hopefully... Us talking about the components and the artwork might draw you into a game that you might not otherwise think that you'd be interested in. Right, right. How many times do you, like, if I'm pulling up a Kickstarter, what's the first thing that catches your eye? And Take a look at what the components are. Exactly. What, what do they what put the in their ads, is. the pictures? Yeah, and you can usually tell 
if the components come out and then you look at it, it's like the gameplay is like really, really bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's something that, yeah, no, artwork and components won't save a bad game. A game can be great without having great components. And while mechanically nothing changes with better components, it still makes a difference. Everybody knows it feels better to have those metal coins and hear that clinging like you feel mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I got wealthy. I just got paid. That's different than sliding some chits over to in front of in front of your tableau, for example. This isn't just with board games. Let's use clothes, for example. Some of the most ridiculously comfortable clothes you could wear would probably look ridiculous. <laughs> Scott, here's a good parallel. I always said with football, I even called it to a radio show here in Pittsburgh. I said with concussions, if they really gave a crap, they could eliminate them entirely if they had all the players wearing gigantic pillow helmets. Everybody looked like Dark Helmet out there on the field with their <laughs> giant pillow helmet. But aesthetics matter. That doesn't look cool. That doesn't look sleek. And people place value on aesthetics. So they don't do it. So to answer the question, art and components, they definitely matter. Great games are made less great if their components suck. But I will say, terrible games are not made good by having exceptional components. You, You cannot save a game by having good components. I mean, stop and look at games that have been around chess, I mean, they're basic components. Sure, they can upgrade some of the components. Mm-hmm. Uh, Go, they're little black and white little yeah, beads like or little something. Beads. So, I mean, it's not anything special. I mean, you can make something special out of it, but mm-hmm. the base game is really plain. But those games have been around forever. It's not necessarily that good components are going to make something good. It's going to be something that may draw you in, but then it's up to you to make that decision on whether or not you want to support that game or not, based on what your tastes are. Well, hopefully that answers the questions this go around. Listeners, we're out of questions. We want your questions right on the main page, levelupgamepodcast.com. Click ask a question and just submit. It's that easy. Don't make me come to your house and make you give us a question. (laughs) I'll do it. Scott, what do you say we talk about how we leveled up? Let's bring this episode on home. That sounds good to me. How did you level up, Patrick? I'll keep it simple and board game related. So my level up this time is uh, for our secret Santa, as my old friend Jeremy was my secret Santa, and he got me this. And you're going, what is that? Inside this case, there is... Let's go ahead and open this up. This thing's probably three pounds. This is a gigantic D100 with a whole bunch of little hexes on it. I'm telling you what, I could knock someone out with it. It rolls for it. That's got some, it's got some oomph to it. I can't actually use it on my table because I think it'll dent the hell out of it, but uh, really, really cool. Really thoughtful too. I I know Jeremy was probably thinking, well, I can't get him a board game. He probably already has it or whatever. So this giant D100, that's going to be how we're determining who goes first from now on. And uh, if you lose a game and you get angry, you can just uh, smash through a window with it. How yeah, about put you, it Scott? in a sock and swing it around a little bit. <laughs> How'd you level up this go? Well, my level up was an annual thing that I do every January 1st. And that is I dressed up in a silly Superman costume and jumped in the Monongahela River for charity. Every year, there's usually around three to 500 people that goes down for the polar bear plunge in Pittsburgh. And all the money that's raised, and this is something I might have to look into later this year as far as trying to raise some more money for it. They raise money from there by people buying t-shirts saying that they jumped in the river. 
we get a chance. Everyone's down there. Everyone's having a good laugh. People dress up in silly things. There was someone dressed up like a teddy bear this year. <laughs> someone was dressed up like Beetlejuice. Nice. All sorts of silliness. But you get to have a few laughs, make some memories. And I tell you what, whenever you get out of that water, you feel like a million bucks whenever you get out of there. Because it just wakes you up and you are ready to take <laughs> on bet. anything that hits you. Being able to help a little bit, bring some more attention to Project Bundle Up. It's just a wonderful feeling each and every January 1st. And I always look forward to it. I look forward to next year. So being able to do something stupid for charity really made my year start off really well. Quite the level up. Well done, sir. I suppose that's going to do it for today. I look forward to our next gaming session. I look forward to our meetup at Ruckus Cafe Two in days. Pittsburgh. That is going to be a big one. They've been getting bigger each and every time. I'm looking forward to playing new games that I haven't played and just having a few good laughs with some good friends. Hey, adventurers, have a good one. We'll see you next time. Take care, all. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.